Hello everyone, this is the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik. This is episode 123 with Colleen Mylot. Colleen is a graduate of Europe University's MFA in Contemporary Performance Program. She's also the artistic director and a co-founder of Band of Tufts, a local theater collaboratory based here in Boulder, Colorado. It's a great conversation about theater, devising, moment work, and casting, and I think you're really going to love it. We have been away for a few months. I, I don't know what to tell y'all. I was busy. I was doing the Comic-Con show and then Nervamlet. And then I started a PhD program. And now we're going to do this more like a Netflix limited release series. And so you can expect about one podcast a month, I dare say. And I'm really excited to get back into it with Colleen. Upcoming, we have the one-year uh, one anniversary of the Non-Binary Monologues Project. That's going to be happening Saturday, October 13th at the Loft Theater at CU Boulder. I'll have the Facebook event link in the episode description. It's going to run 4.30 to 6, featuring all local non-binary, transgender, gender non-conforming performers. It's going to be super fun. Come on out. There will be treats of some sort. Join us. I want to give a huge shout out to the work of Catherine Lynn Morgan, who is one of our very first guests here on the Theatrical Mustang podcast. And the podcast itself gets a shout out in the inaugural issue of New Theater Magazine. New Theater Magazine is an independent theater magazine for a new era. The inaugural issue of New Theater Magazine by New Theater Publishing features all theater-based content for theater makers, artists, technicians, lovers, and goers. Content includes interviews, roundtable conversations, book reviews, comics, illustrations, reader submission columns, and five short plays. New Theater Magazine and Publishing uses the power of media and journalism to study inclusivity in theater by bringing underrepresented and marginalized voices to the forefront of storytelling. We seek artists who believe in magic. We believe theater is among the most powerful art form tools for social change and seek creators who believe the same. We seek storytellers who aim to examine, challenge, disrupt, and transform the status quo through their work especially people of color, women, queer, trans, non-binary, neurodiverse, and disabled storytellers. We believe authenticity is the only valid form of social currency. We aim to illuminate the conversations and work happening in local and regional theater spaces around the nation and the globe. We want to hear personal stories about the transformative power of the performing arts. You can check out the new issue up at the website, www.newtheatermagazine.com. Theater is spelled Ari, as it should be. Uh, they are also on your favorite social media platforms. We'll have a link to their website in the episode description. And now, friends, welcome back to the podcast. Please enjoy episode 123 with Colleen Mylot. Hi, I am here. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Colleen Mylot, who is a co-founder of Band of Tufts, a theater collaboratory. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we met, we're both, neuro, we're ne both Naropa Contemporary Performance graduates, yep, yep. though different timelines. Uh, and so we met this summer working on a, a, 
one of my just very favorite shows, Nirvamlet, which was a mashup of Nirvana and Hamlet. Yeah. And so I thought we would start out and kind of talk... I want to talk about Band of Tufts and that journey, too, but I thought we would start talking about Nirvana. Nirvana, of course, but Nirvana. Right. I had to learn a lot about Nirvana because I always joke that I know I know about musical theater, I know about Weird Al and Tenacious D, and I don't really know about a lot of other music, but right, yeah. it was super fascinating. So why don't you start with how did you even come up as, as a company with this concept of grunge and Shakespeare? Yeah. We we tend to do an annual retreat where we go up in the mountains and hang out for a weekend and just talk about the company and where we're headed. Um, so we had just finished um, an As You Like It, uh, our, our version of As You Like It, which whenever we pick up Shakespeare, it's sort of um, not sacred. So... Um, <laughs> So it was like 50% Band of Tufts and 50% Shakespeare. Um, And not everybody in the company loves Shakespeare quite the way that I do. Um, But I love it because it's a known quantity that you can kind of mess with and people will still hang in with you. Yeah. Um, So I like it for like deconstructionist type purposes. So we were just hanging out trying to figure out what the next project might be. Um, And we kept bringing up Hamlet and maybe doing something there. And then we often bring rock and roll into the, the room <laughs> just because we've always had, we've, we've talked about it being like a, a splash of rock and roll as just a theater mission and vision. Um, you know, we did a piece on MTV, the golden era, that sort of stuff. So Joan, after, I think it was multiple glasses of wine for all, all participants in the retreat, um, was like, why don't we do something called Nervamlet? And everybody just <laughs> joked and we were like, ha ha ha. And then, Wait. yeah, then there was this pause, <laughs> this hush that came over. Well, first we started like just playing grunge music. Like yeah. we were like, we could do this song and this song. And then. One of the first creative ideas was like, oh, we want to sing Come As You Are. And we thought we would have a tour bus to wherever the show was going to take place. And right. that it would be like, we knew we knew the first song that would be part of the show. Um, and so we just kept joking and joking. And at some point we were all like, huh, like this actually might have legs. Um, and where in the timeline, what what date are we at when we decide, yes, Nirvana, it's a go? Yeah, you know, I think the next morning we kind of woke up because it was a full weekend. And I was like, there might be something there. And then we decided, because we often have like a weekly rehearsal because we have a granted space. We were like, let's just go in the room and mess with it um, and see if there is a there there um, in kind of that tectonic way of talking about like you have a hunch and you think there might be a play. So you're like, all right, let's start throwing things against the wall and And, seeing. And for folks who might not know, Tectonic Theater Company developed the like probably the most well-known Famous, example yeah. is the Laramie Project. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And they have a really specific way of working that, you know, I think you and I studied sort of in our graduate studies, and I became a pretty big believer. It had been a toolkit I had been looking for my whole creative life without realizing it. Mm-hmm. And then once I got that toolkit of just moment work and trying to make shows from the ground up in a in sort of a systematic devised way, I just I can't not touch it um, right at this point. So 
So yeah, as quickly into the project, we started to realize, um, and there were things about the Nirvana story that I really didn't until I started researching a little bit more. I had been a fan growing up, like as a, a little kid, sure. um, listening to, to that music, but I didn't really, I wasn't that interested in Kurt Cobain in that story necessarily as a story in and of itself, um, because it felt like a really kind of cliched rock story to me from the outside. But as I started to dig in and research more, there became like some really cool intersections between Hamlet and that story that started to really fascinate me. And this thing of this question mark of femininity and fame and, you know, were Kurt and Courtney doing relatively similar things and getting judged differently for them and and kind of you know there's there's also a femininity strain in Ophelia and I just started to be like oh like there's actually a lot here that I would like to talk about um and explore so and I think we as a team were like let's let's keep doing it so and I I didn't realize like how as I said I'm pretty siloed in musical theater and novelty band land but <clears throat> I remember I had I had a boyfriend about God, now it's like seven, eight years ago, who wanted to be Kurt Cobain, like dressed like Kurt Cobain, and I had no frame of reference as to like how plugged into this he was until right. Nirvana, like just like <laughs> ripped up cardigans. Yeah, he owned multiple vintage Volvos. Uh huh. I and I remember at the now it's it's a called it's called something different now, but I think it's the Museum of Pop Culture now. In um, in Seattle, they had this Nirvana retrospective and guitars, you know, notebooks, all the things, and mm-hmm. all the people there, and they were profoundly moved just by being in the vicinity of some of, of his stuff. instruments yeah. and and all of that. And it, I didn't really realize that until we started digging deep in this. And then the folks who had come to the show multiple times, like there were some folks who came like two to three times yeah. because it was so important to, to now even yeah. 24 years later connect with that story yeah yeah even with this like transposed hamlet thing yeah going on. yeah i was amazed at kind of the repeat audience as well um and i'm glad because you know i think i felt like there were so many pitfalls like picking up the material that we did both the hamlet material quite honestly and the nirvana <laughs> material but especially like even with the MTV show, like putting rock icons on stage in any sort of way. And like, do you try to mimic, do you fill the shoes? Like what those, those performative questions that come by representing an icon, I think are really touchy. And so, um, I was worried. I felt like there were traps all around, but there's also something exciting about that. Um, so I'm glad that at least in the 1.0 version, it wasn't a, like offensive or, you know, like people who really do are devoted to that band seem to have an okay experience. We didn't seem to offend them. Um, right. Yeah. Which, you know, and I can't maybe speak for a hundred percent, but I haven't heard about it. <laughs> okay. So you least. decide on the concept, you start working on it. 
just because I, gosh, the, the folks who came through the DCPA auditions, we started working with you maybe in ju- late June, sometime in June. Yeah, May, maybe end of May, early June, probably. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what is that springtime ramping up to DCPA generals look like for this process? Yeah, you know, it was fairly spacious, like once a week, um, throwing stuff against the wall. One of the biggest things that I was trying to set my mind at rest, and this is always really hard for me when we start to devise material, is that the company was trying to basically say, like, this is 1.0 of what we think is three different versions of this show. Sure. So they kept, everyone is very, like, knows me and how um, neurotic I can be around, like, product. (laughs) And so, you know, everybody kept saying, like, even if it's just the beginnings of this story, like, it doesn't have to be a fully produced thing um and so we spent a lot of the time like figuring out what were the most crucial story points both in the hamlet storyline and also in kurt cobain's life um and then it became like maybe you know we i kept saying like maybe we just do five scenes but we do them like we really kind of figure out how this intersection works between these two source materials. Um, uh, but I have a really, like, I'm I'm very seduced and also want narrative as part of a journey. Um, and so it's hard for me not to think about the full picture, actually. Sure. Um, so I feel like we still had a beginning, middle, and end, even though everybody had been like, you really could just have, like, the gravedigger scene and a couple other things, and we could right. just show that at the fringe. And, of course, that didn't really happen. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, the last few Band of Tufts projects that we've had, we've had a cast of about 50% people that are fairly new to the room and 50% veterans. Um, and we have a great, as a company... We have a really great retention rate, which is kind of awesome. But because we're in the area that we're in and we can't provide a full income to the people we're working with, like there's so many schedules and mechanics involved in who we get when that, um, you know, it tends to be half and half just because of availability. Um, So ramping up for auditions, did you, because one of the things that I found fascinating and super helpful for the process that I think we were going for five, six weeks before we knew which roles yeah. we were. And that sort of, it gives you a freedom, but then also I, I'm a strategic little brat sure. too. Sure. And so of course I had some ideas of who I wanted to be, but when you went in to sit, um, when the company went in to sit on the Denver Center for the Performing Arts general auditions, mm-hmm. um, I'm guessing y'all just sat in on the non-equity yes. auditions. Yes. Did you did you have a certain number in mind or certain types you were looking for, or were you just like, let's see, let's see what folks were. We just say yes. I want to see some more from that person. Right. From- yeah, it's interesting because we're looking for like whenever I go to the DCPA auditions we're looking for a a kind of uniqueness, but I don't know exactly what it's looking like. And actually I did some of the DCPA auditions and then other company members did other days because of schedule. Right. And so I remember really distinctly that Michael Gunst actually saw your audition. So 
what we did was we went to the DCPA and I have a certain rating system that I shared with the company. And I was like, this is only if it's useful to you. Right. But I basically, I, I have basically like movements, a really big thing for us. Um, so I have a, a movement scale that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking for people, the smartness of the pieces that they chose to present and the contrast there. And then like, what I the only way I can call it is like a bots factor, and I I don't even know what that means except that like we're kind of looking for people who are individuals like and have have kind of found their performer identity in a certain way. So it can look like a lot of things. Like it has to do with uniqueness. Like I. I don't, you know, I think the thing that's when you sit in the DCPA auditions, what's the toughest for me is like, oh, another girl in heels and a skirt coming <laughs> in, doing a monologue that was written in the 90s and is like an awful part. Like, why would you, you know, and, I, I, and not to be a jerk about it, but it's like, I'm hope I'm hopeful that the artistic conversations and the shows <sighs> that we can make are are progressive in a certain way and when i see something that's kind of like stodgy in that way i get a little bit bummed out but sometimes i'll see like somebody will do a stodgy piece but in a whole different way so like it can come from anywhere but it's it's kind of this unique thing so then we all got together and shared our notes of the dcpa auditions and then kind of just did invitations and you know like that's also kind of a self-selecting process of like who even makes it to our audition and can handle the way that we audition which like is kind of a pain in the butt go on right? a corner do some moment work you don't know what moment work is yeah like it doesn't matter just too bad so thing. sad yeah and the thing is like i think that's the biggest thing is like we're looking both for performers and strong performers but we're also looking for creators. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are the same people. Sometimes those are very different. Like I've definitely been in bots processes where I've realized that certain actors we're working with, I'm like, you're a performer. You want to be told what to do. You don't want to find it with us. And that's fine because like, I understand the patience that that takes, but I think that the product's so much better because of it, but it takes time, energy. And it is this thing too of like, yes, we go to new people and we're like, we don't know if you're gonna be messenger from the left or if you're gonna be Hamlet. Um, you wanna play, you know? And that's that's in and of itself a self-selecting process. And yeah, I, you know, I'd love to say I'm being strategic about that, but I'm not really. The thing that I realized early on is I used to go in with it, like what I thought the casting was, even amongst our company, like the eight people that I was working with the most. And I would have like these great ideas of who I thought was going to play what role. And then we'd actually get in the room and I would realize in action that I was totally wrong. Like that, like that the the zeitgeist of the room and where it was pulling people and what they were interested in doing. Like if I listened to that, I was going to get a much better casting than if I just like on a piece of paper in the middle of the right. night was like, and you are this and you are that like that us wrestling to figure out what the show is, is part of the casting process in and of itself. Like I would have never, you know, when I invited you and other people to be in the room, I couldn't have told you where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as characters were going. Right. And so I didn't know who should be cast there um, until we knew, you know. Um, well, I love that because I feel like, and this is something that I'm trying 
really hard just in, in terms of some of the activism work I do is like how do we make our training programs as well as the audition processes that we create more inclusive so that we get out of this one because you know me like I freaking hate binaries, but this idea of, you know, men show up and do this, women show up and do this, mm-hmm. you can't do pieces against type, like, you can't do this, you can't do that, and I'm working on this uh, presentation for the Statera conference uh, with Andrea Prestonario, who's the co-founder of Ring of Keys, which is this queer women plus collective musical theater that's getting national attention, and she was saying that the she found out the more she leaned into herself and her queer identity and what made her unique, that's when these really juicy professional opportunities started popping up. And I, right. I think we're seeing that more and more so that our industry is moving away from, you can only fit into this box, you can right. only fit into that box. And so that's really great to hear that through sort of a trial and error process that that's sort of what you've come to and having this, unique you can set you set you apart instead of like being a detriment if that makes yeah, any sense absolutely yeah but I want to talk about how so we're working in the room for I want to say five six weeks before we even find out right and I keep putting the, the date back <laughs> like I kept being like oh maybe next week and the, no maybe next and week and the actors are dying inside <laughs> uh but I just wanted just because uh part of the work that I like to do is I think that folks in the industry there's a there's a fear of looking stupid or not knowing what to do with gender diverse actors mm-hmm. they're like we know it's a good thing to do sure but what do we do sure. and so i would love uh to pick your brain in terms of the process of cool this non-binary actor assigned female at birth they them pronouns with roles of all genders on their resume comes in what I mean, had you seen that before? Like, how did you, when you were going to the casting bit, like, what was the process? And this is seriously not an ego thing, but just hopefully being an informational tool for other folks who are listening. What was that process with, you know, using me as an example from the casting, you know, saying yes, extending the invitation after the callbacks to being like, this is Laertes. Right. Yeah. You know, I have, I've had experience working with nine non-binary actors before um, and have tried to be kind of an advocate and ally my whole life. Um, and, you know, Community College of Aurora, it, it was um, a gift in terms of me just being a director and teacher there because of just the diversity of all sorts of, of, categories and peoples and and amazingness so um so yeah I knew that you were coming in the room and that you identified as non-binary um and I I was excited about your talent and your uniqueness um and you have whether you're into music or not you have a, a rock and roll um persona whether you realize it or not <laughs> that's the coolest thing ever <laughs> well okay um and so yeah i was just attracted to you you know and i i'm i'm i one of my friends who's a director always talks about that being a director you kind of fall in love with everyone in the room sure um and i love that and i do that all yeah. the time um and i think the only skill that i have as a director or one of them is that I can see everyone's brilliance and I try to make platforms for them. 
like I can think back to like very early signs even in my own childhood yeah. of like I remember doing this exercise where we had to like write compliments for everybody in the room. Yes, I love yeah. that. Yeah. That's and just a great exercise for anyone in a group setting. Like I know, take notes so your listeners. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone leaves with a page full of of, of positivity. Yeah. And yeah. and and I see you, right? And so I remember I was like in fifth grade when we did that exercise and I think literally out of like 20 students 18 of them read the comment that I had written and it's just that thing of like I could I could see all the brilliance even when I was that young that was in the room um and so you know I I had no idea where you fit and you actually also expressed that you were maybe working on another project so I didn't know how much time you would be able to give us um, and so there's always schedule, right? Like right. time, time and our process is always like at, at complete odds with each other. That's the thing I'm always straddling the most. So I had no idea where you were going to fit. I just knew that I wanted you to. And so it would work itself out. Um, and, you know, I got a lot of flack about how many people I was letting into the room, like even from some of the core company around, like, do we really need that many new people and new faces? And I was like, yeah, I don't know, but I'm really interested in all these people. So I really wasn't thinking about casting when I invited who I invited. Right. Um, and it's one of those things is like, as I'm falling in love in a rehearsal process, like I will find a way to, to showcase your brilliance and see where you fit. And I really wasn't sure what your preference was around like if a certain gender was more attractive to you in your own artistic process. Like I can't always facilitate an individual's artistic Sure. want within such a large ensemble because right. like again our average is like 20 people usually yeah. in the room but if I can if I can merge those things I will try and so I remember you responding to me me <laughs> just saying hey if anybody has preferences or casting thoughts like you yeah. can just send them to me yeah. I can't promise you anything yeah but I it was it was a great for me, it was a great gift to get into your head a little bit because I probably could have served you less if I didn't know. So I'm glad that you had the boldness to really advocate for what you might be more interested in. Um, yeah, and so that was exciting. Yeah, and we just ended up at Laertes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I loved it. I loved it so much. I know. And there's more to find, I think, in that relationship and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. when when you think of this being Nervamlet Nerv 1.0, so all the practical things of funding and spaces aside, Ugh, yes. mm-hmm. what would be your ideal next step for this process? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we did. We already had our retreat after Nervamlet closed 1.0 and it was amazing how quickly we all like couldn't stop obsessively talking about where it goes next um which was kind of encouraging it means it's still like a passion project yeah. for all of us um I know for sure I will uh I want to deal with the last third of the show yeah um it's a little incomplete like basically from 
when Polonius dies forward, there are some gems in there. There are some things I know are worth keeping. But in terms of the ride, the last third is a little draft form right now and needs to be tended to a little bit more. Um, I think we just kind of ran out of time, but I think also I'm, I, it's that thing of like the hunch is trying to tell me what I'm most interested in in the story and why these things have converged and why we put them in the room together. But it like, it's like stuck in the birth canal still a little bit. And I'll be, <laughs> I'll be standing in the shower probably in like four months and be like, ah, and that, that'll, that's what'll that's happen. Thing. Yeah. And it's not just from my brain, but it's just like what we created, like what I'm really interested in. I, and I can tell my hunch is that it has something to do with depression and suicide and like, and rock icons and that, what what is happening in our culture and just even like if you think about the 90s rock era so many of that particular genre of music have been lost and i think i think there's a there there but i don't i don't know how to say it yet but but I, we're on the hunt um for sure but you know i also would like to up the ante of the immersive experience like there's something about the journey that um, the audience took that I think we could go a little further. I was even talking about like, what if there are two casts, but but Detective Fortinbras like weaves people in and those sorts okay. of things. Um, and everybody was like, oh god, no, not like not double the cast. So I might get vetoed on that that um, thought. But I think I think for me, what's interesting is is. Again, I'm not into immersive theater that's just like a theater museum where you kind of create your own adventure. Right. I'm interested in a curated narrative, narrative that, but one that's accessible and involving you. And so those are different things. So I think I'm trying to like figure out how to push that a little bit more. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. To be continued with Nirvamlet. 2.0. Yeah. I mean, we're looking, you know, in Denver for right now. Um, and, you know, there's even the office building that we did galvanize there is a galvanized denver i haven't really seen the footprint of that sure so that's one possibility but there there are many but even we'll if see. we have to produce it ourselves you know yeah. um we will it's just i want as many people to see our baby as possible because it's really our baby it's not mine right you know? so we're going to put Nirvana at rest for this <laughs> podcast. Uh, I want to find out. This is our like James Lipton blue, uh, blue index card moment. So what is there a moment from your youth where you're like, this is the moment where I fell in love with art making and I thought maybe this could be a thing that I do for a while. Yeah. Gosh. Um, you know, it's funny. I like, I, I was always involved in art, right? So I started as a dancer from a really young age. And then I went to a performing arts high school, which Lucky. sounds, it sounds really fame-like, but it, it really wasn't. Um, but it was great to be able to do three periods a day of drama. That's a pretty, wow. it's a pretty sweet deal. And to be honest with you, like I started as a dancer um, 
and I sort of fell out of love with dancing. Like I thought that dancing was the thing actually when I was really young. Um, and then around 16, I started to get really restless. I was watching a lot of people in my dance school lose weight and have to look a certain way and something snapped for me. Like the art fell out of the bottom and I was like, why am I watching all my friends starve to be this thing that's so traditional? And I, I didn't, I don't had, I didn't have any of the consciousness I have now about like what that actually meant to me, but it was, I was, I was sick of being a physical robot and I wanted to use my creative brain a little bit more. Um, and I wasn't, to be honest, that good of an actor. <laughs> uh, but I think I was always a great troublemaker. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think for a while I didn't know that that was a good thing. Um, but that, you know, I was a really good, like, ringleader of madness. Um, and, and I could juggle more plates than most people simultaneously. Um, and I had a really great uh, best friend that I met in undergrad. We started a theater company even in Minneapolis when I lived there before I even went to grad school. And it was, it's weird. Like I, there was never a conscious, like I should do this. I mean, my best friend and I always like joke and, and she was one of the co-founders of the band of Tufts. It's like, I think I was attracted to theater because it was the hardest possible thing I could possibly pick up. Like that's really how it feels. And there was something about being pretty okay at a lot of things, but this thing was so challenging and so hard and, and got all of my, all of the wheels in my head spinning at the same time, which made me really excited. Well, I think it's a thing. I, I had, I had my advisor in undergrad say this to me in a more negative way, but I think what you just said is the positive spin <laughs> on it. The thing of, right. If you can do anything else, if you do, can do it, anything right. else other than theater, do, do it. it. Yeah. But I think what you said is it's the hardest thing. And that is why I'm drawn to I'm it. Like a moth to flame. With it, <laughs> for sure. So I where, know. where are you going to, where are you going to undergrad in Minneapolis? Um, so undergrad actually was in Virginia. So I went oh, okay. to William and Mary and then after William and Mary, I didn't know what to do with my life. So what was cool about that too, is that William and Mary was like a pretty conservative school to go to. So I got a really traditional theater academic type of, of, um, education. Sure. I went to London though for like a study abroad while sure. at my time. And that was probably like that eye opening place of, Britain just like had also just like the theater values sort of in reverse to America yeah, in this way that yeah. I was really excited because I wasn't a musical theater person. Right. And so for me, I was like, oh, like in London, like three quarters of the plays are straight plays and one quarter is musicals and spectacle. And I liked that variation. And then in London too, I was seeing a lot of dance theater. And so what started to happen in my undergrad brain is I was doing like a dance minor. I had a, a I had to double major for my parents to pay for my education. So I was double majoring in English so I could read more plays and theater and then had this minor in dance. And I was running around like to dance shows and to theater shows. And I remember like being in dance shows with my hair curled because I had to go across the campus to do a performance. And like, I was just like, when can I get my dancer self to actually talk to my theater self? And that's why I chose the Naropa program. That was like 
I was trying right. to like make those connections finally. How much time passes between graduating from undergrad and starting Naropa? Five or six years. So pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, although it didn't feel quick. That was like, you know, that's like a really like long chapter. I think that like that space after undergrad before grad, at least for me, was like that was <sighs> those were some rough years, those ones right in between there. So when you were applying to Naropa, it was pretty early on in the creation of the program, yeah? Yeah, it was. I was in the second class, the second graduating class. So how the heck did you even find out about it? Yeah, Minneapolis, you know, is a great theater town. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember, you know, I was working on a show, actually, and I remember being at the Kinko's FedExing my application with <laughs> someone that I knew from the area. Um, and he had sort of told me about the program. I I had been on the hunt basically for programs that I felt like were going to merge movement Interdisciplinary. and theater. Yeah. It's really, to the best of my knowledge, at least in the U.S., I believe it's one of the only ones that's not yep. so freaking siloed. Yep. For yeah, sure. And I had actually, I had applied to a couple of other programs and I got really close, like, and they were those kind of programs like the one you're at right now, where it's like, we accept two people a year. So I got waitlisted actually to the directing program at DePaul, and I probably would have done that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my story is a little weird because I actually got waitlisted by Naropa. Oh, I did too. Yeah. So I, I got... was the last one off the waitlist. They let me know first week of June. That I needed to be there. I can be middle you. of August. I was okay. It was two weeks away from the beginning of the semester. <gasps> I was closing like three different shows at the Minneapolis Fringe Festival, and it was it was the weirdest thing. Like the universe never speaks to me to tell me what I'm supposed to do next, but it was so the thing I was supposed to do because right. I was closing all those shows. Um, Wendell called me and was like, "Someone can't secure their visa." Do you want to come? You have 24 hours to decide. And yes, the semester starts in two weeks. And I just was like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. But I had family who lived out here already. Like Janet was already out here. Like some of my immediate family was here. So I knew I could like move without an apartment and right. figure that out. And then I also had a boyfriend at the time who had just... He had gotten into a grad school, had moved that summer to start his grad program in engineering in California, had only like a week before this Wendell call, moved all his stuff back in Minneapolis and was like, I want to give this a try with you and I'm not going to go to that grad program even though I said I would. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He had also gotten into CU Boulder in that engineering program. And so he was like, his stuff was already packed, like sitting in my driveway. Um, and so I was like, dude, do you want to move to Boulder with me? And so we did with like no notice whatsoever. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. What are some of the uh, greatest hits from your time at Naropa? If you're like, yeah. let's do a high fidelity thing, like top right. three to five moments. Top three to five moments. Um, you know, obviously meeting Lee Fondakowski, who yes. has become like one of my most treasured mentors. Yeah. Um, and I think she saw the creator in me when I didn't even know it was there um, and really fostered that. So that was a big deal. Um, other things, I made this crazy thesis experiment that had 14 of my peers in it. Um, and it was it was chaos on the Camino reel. So I took Tennessee Williams and kind of broke it apart. And I didn't know what I was doing yet, but I was like so excited that I was able to sweet talk fourteen of my right. co students into playing with me. And so 
that was kind of ringleader-esque in that way. Um, I was also in a, a thesis of uh, Randy Rand, who's part of um, Elevator Repair Service. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he was he was in our year. Um, and I just really loved working with him. His, his creative brain is really different than mine. Um, and then another, one of the first moment work assignments we did was with like a group of five or six people and three of those five or six people ended up becoming co-founders of the Band of Toughs. So like even then I was like subconsciously attracted to people making work the way I, like, and we, we were the weirdest group. Like <laughs> Moises made a whole new word for us called flimsical, which was like <laughs> flimsical, flimsical, whimsical mi- mixed with some flimsiness of just like we were, we were all over the map, but it was like creative amazingness yeah so Naropa I'm sure it, it's a weird thing where it just flies by but also it's forever yep yep uh so you graduate from Naropa and then I think it's just super helpful to hear what folk because there's so there's such this conversation I feel in in a lot of artistic communities is an MFA worth it? Like, what do you do after you have an MFA? So what did you do after yeah. you got your MFA? If for me, it was definitely worth it. It was worth every penny. And one of the reasons is because I'm sort of a slow burn. Like, I don't walk into an audition and you're impressed by me. Um, <laughs> you're, you're impressed by me because you spend a lot of time with me. Yeah. Um, and you start to see, like, how my brain works or whatever. So almost all the job opportunities that I have gotten since I graduated from the MFA are from other students that were in the MFA with me. So like I did work as an instructor at the Community College of Aurora and that's because Stacy was in my class. Um, and to be honest with you, if you had told me that I was going to work with Stacy as much as I did, like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have called that because we weren't necessarily in school gravitating towards each other, but we're a great complement to each other. Um, and so I feel like I've been really fortunate too. Like I've, I feel like I might be one of the people who have worked with the most alumni from the program. And it's because I can direct my vision, but I can also serve other people's vision. And sometimes that's what they need directorially. Right. And so I'm able to kind of shape shift a little bit in terms of what things are. So lots of teaching opportunities and and Lee you know really helped set me up I actually apprenticed with Moises very very early on after graduating the program which was great in terms of just like I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing now that I've got this training and so being able to go to a professional theater environment and kind of work with him and stand over a bunch of you know, index cards and him, <laughs> him sort of like building a show from the ground up was really eye opening, you know, um, and really helpful. So I was able to shadow him a lot. Um, and yeah, I just, I feel like everything came to me only because of the MFA. Cause again, I'm just right. not, I'm not going to go out there and be like, hello world. Like <laughs> here I am. So for me, like those longer term connections are, are everything. Yeah. How did the idea for Band of Toughs come to be? And I mean, what's the, you know, three to five minute quick version of how to make your own theater company your way? Yeah. You know, um, it actually started as 
there were a lot of us who were starting to like come to the program and then be like, we actually like the quality of life of Colorado. If we could hold on to that and not have to move back to New York and those places right, that we came right. from, we might want to. So it started actually the first name of the band of Tufts was called the Illuminous Collective. And it, it was literally a bunch of us meeting from the first and second graduating classes being like, Hey, should we make work together? Question mark. And so we made a show, we made a version of Big Love that was under the Illuminous Collective name, and that was about 10 years ago now. Um, and then there were eight of us who sort of like really produced that thing and like made it happen in Denver. And we looked at each other and we're like, we'd like to do this again. Um, and then we changed our name. We figured like, it's not really an alumni thing. Now it's like these eight people who kind of still want to make work together thing. Um, and so then we tested out names, came up with the band of Tufts. That was like one of our first retreats. And we've just been like, we, we had promise rings and things like that. Yeah. And to be honest, like the real, you know, real life really caught up with us. Like half of that contingent is still here, but half have moved to other areas. Um, cause making art in Colorado is hard. Right. Um, but I think that's been like the best evolution for me is that I figured out how to work with real life limitations and still have my dream theater company. Um, and that's been a big trial, but I don't know, you know, it really like all that stuff. When I look back at it, like happened kind of naturally, but again, I'm, I'm sort of good at like being in a room. I remember that Illuminous first meeting was like 40 people. Um, wow. And, you know, being like, hey, maybe we should do big love, you know, and then we just started to work in the room. And then those 40 people became 20 who were really committed, you know, and we made a show and it was really popular and successful, you know. Um, but I'm bad at the marketing part. There's a lot. The, the company sort of suffers from my strengths and my weaknesses. So the art part's great and the people are great and the retention's great and the like the preciousness of the art is is where it's all kicking but the business part of things has been a really long journey that's a whole nother podcast but yeah so as we sort of as we sort of wind down our time together i i know this could easily be like a four hour long conversation uh i just love everything that you're bringing to the table but if you if you had to send folks off with a couple of pieces of art making advice or if someone's listening to this and saying I want to do what Colleen does. I mean, what what advice would you offer? Yeah, um, I think I think there is something about. I was always really in love with the Bloomsburg group in terms of like art in everyday life, and that I do think like art art making is muscular. Um, and so the more opportunities you can get to really like articulate and make the art happen. But, you know, as I've gotten older and as I've evolved, I've also like figured out like what I'm about and what to say no to. So like when somebody walks in and has the high heels and the skirt, I'm just like, I'm not that interested in you. You know, like, <laughs> and when Woodzik walks through my door, we all go on fire, you know, so <laughs> There's something about being, it is about that thing of like, what really makes your artistic heart tick? Like lean into that and and keep running, like just keep running. And again, for me, it's just always been the joy of other people's brilliance. And so that's like the company I've made, you know, with a lot of help and everybody else. Yeah. So keep, keep, keep using your artistic muscles. 
lean into your brilliance and your uniqueness, and then I'm guessing lots of snacks. Lots of snacks, a little sleep, a dash of sleep deprivation. I mean, I'm kind of famous for, like, Stacy wrote this thing about, like, Colleen seems to find extra hours in the day. I can tell you exactly where they come from. They come from four hours of sleep every night, you know. And eventually, yeah, lots of sugary snacks and a little sleep deprivation. Dash of that. Dash of that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. And, uh, yeah. Yay. Yay. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.